church, I'll encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 32. 2 Chronicles 32. We find ourselves there this morning in our Bible reading. If you're tracking along with us or whether you're just kind of following along with the sermon series, either way, this is kind of where we're at as we prepare to read the corresponding texts and stories in the book of 2 Kings. But as I was reading through and thinking through uh, which one of these examples in Second Chronicles uh, we would turn to for this Sunday, this story uh, just glaringly stood out as one of a tremendous story of God's provision and grace, and then also how he um, uses certain opportunities, certain situations and happenings in our life to shape us and more firmly solidify our grasp of his grace and provision and protection. As we look at 2 Chronicles, as we've read through 2 Chronicles uh, over the last week or week plus, uh, we see just this repeated cycle of kings who did what was displeasing or evil in the sight of the Lord, unlike their father David, and kings who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And as we consider our modern scenario, the modern time in which we find ourselves, and we can all, I think with agreement, say that there is an ever-increasing and mounting attack against those who would submit themselves to the authority of God's word and call themselves disciples of Christ. As we look at the current celebration and outright promotion of prideful homosexuality, or we look at the degradation of the family, or the consistent compromise and assault on the truth of God's word, even from within our own uh, Baptist convention. There's no doubt that we are in desperate and consistent need of a biblical worldview, which will provide us with the appropriate defense and attack against such an enemy. That an appropriate and strong, firm worldview founded on the truth of God's word shows us not only how we can respond to such, but how God is working in the midst of such to shape us, mold us, and how he's using his church to speak out against the cultural moment. So most people, I think, either believer or non-believer alike, would openly admit and tell you that things in our world are bad. Now, where the disagreement would occur is what the cause and solution to that bad is and what is bad. Right? So nobody wants to see themselves as part of the cause, and everyone sees themselves as part of the solution. Right? So, except that is for those of us who are in Christ. And what I want us to see this morning as we look through this story of Hezekiah and, and an attack that happened on the people of Israel 
Uh, we have a beautiful and powerful story of what it means and what it looks like and what it requires to wholly trust in the protection of God to preserve his people for his glory. And you'll see the title for this morning's sermon is, On What Are You Trusting? And we'll see kind of the, the impetus of that, the, the source of that title here in a little bit as we move into the story. But we're going to walk through this story. And on your outline, you'll see this morning just these points that we're going to draw from this story that I think are also applicable to us as the church, the people of God, the, the, those who are united with Christ. For us to trust in the Lord's provision, to persevere and to see that he is the one who is guiding all things according to his purposes and for his glory. So I want to ask you, church, to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's word. And we're just going to read the first part of our text this morning, verses 1 through 8 of Second Chronicles chapter 32. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside of the city. And they helped him. A great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? He set to work resolutely and built up the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it. And outside it, he built another wall and he strengthened the millow in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance. And he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word this morning, eager to be molded and shaped by it, I pray, God, that you would truly pierce each and every one of our hearts this morning with the light of your gospel, shining into the darkness of our sinfulness, bringing us to continued repentance and edifying your church for the glorification of your name. God, help us to trust wholly in you, your protection, your provision for your people, knowing that you are at work to glorify your name amongst the nations through your church. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. So as you're being seated, I just want to, uh, as, as I always like to do, to kind of provide us some context as to what is going on here, what's the theme of Chronicles, right? We looked at that uh, uh, several weeks back as we looked at Chronicles and Kings and kind of compared and contrasted the two. 
So the author of Chronicles, both first and second, uses, again, the books of Samuel and Kings as his source text to tell that long, arching story of God's redemptive purpose through the people of Israel. So the book of Chronicles are written to take a look back and to see all that God did through this period. And what he did before and how he's at work still after. That's the, the thematic purpose of the books of Chronicles. The general theme is how Israel's repeated rebellion against the Lord led to the Babylonian exile in their judgment. So he, the, the author wants the people to see like, oh, this is where we went wrong. And here is what we should be looking to, right? So in the midst of this, the Chronicler also shows a couple of things. Primarily, he shows that the obedience to the law remains the standard. That the Mosaic law remains true. That it is not something that should be tossed away. We're not moving on to a different era. But that those who are the chosen of God, who are submitting themselves to him, still look to the Mosaic law. That's at the time of this writing, right? And... The second thing they shows is how the people are still steadfastly hoping in looking to the Lord's fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So the Mosaic law still stands. The Davidic covenant, we're looking to the Lord's fulfillment of that, right? His ultimate fulfillment of that. So today's story highlights all of these thematic emphasis, okay? The chronicler spends more time on the reign of Hezekiah than he does any other king after the reigns of David and Solomon. So more, so just using our context clues, using just basic knowledge of how we read through God's word, if an author spends a lot of time on a particular theme or person or subject, we ought to pay attention to that, right? So the, the chronicler spends more time on the reign of Hezekiah than any other king outside of David and Solomon. So that should be a big sign to us that the author is trying to tell us something through the amount of detail and time he spends on a particular storyline. In fact, we read this just a few chapters before our text today. He explicitly says in uh, chapter 30, verse 26, There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Referring to the ascension of um, Hezekiah to the throne and his restoration of the worship of the Lord. Another thing which should strike us as important is that this is another storyline which differs from what we see in the book of Kings. So, we read of Hezekiah's reign in 2 Kings chapters 18 through 20. And when you go to read 2 Kings pretty soon, here after we finish reading through Chronicles, you're going to wonder, why am I not reading the same details that I read in Chronicles? And as we said when we looked at the, uh, that when the Lord prompted David to take a census, which was then judged as being sinful. And there we saw that in Kings it said that the Lord prompted. And then in Chronicles, we saw that it was Satan who prompted. So we see here the same thing, that this is not a point of contradiction, but rather two authors with different points of emphasis on the same story. 
So whereas 2 Kings focuses more on Hezekiah during the Assyrian invasion, Chronicles tells us a, a different emphasis. So each telling is an important detail that informs our understanding of the other. And so this is why we see stories like our text today shine a beautiful light of truth on God's movement in the hearts of man to accomplish his good purposes. Look at verse 1 again. So, after these things and these acts of faithfulness, so what, was, what were these things? What were these acts of faithfulness? Well, upon his ascension to the throne, after the death of his father Ahaz, Hezekiah immediately begins to restore right and true worship to the people of Israel. He immediately begins to set the Mosaic law once again as the standard. And he gets rid of the idols and the pagan worship. And he reestablishes the Levites and the priests. So after all these acts of faithfulness, what happens? Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. So after what? After all these acts of faithfulness, what happens? A king, a pagan king, comes to attack and invade Judah? So what you're telling me is that after the people have been brought back to a healthy posture of humility and worship before God, after they had rid themselves of idols, places of pagan worship, all manner of covenant-breaking things, under the leadership of Hezekiah, what happened? They immediately face opposition, impossible oppression by an invading force. And I want us to learn a couple of things from this scenario. The first is this, that this does not line up with our sense of justice, does it? So our sense of justice would have us think that when we do the right thing, then like a dog who just shook his owner's hand, we expectantly await a reward for our good efforts. And this is not so with God, and this is not what we see throughout Scripture. Repeatedly throughout Scripture, we see God use the cruelty of this sinful, darkened world to accomplish his good purpose. And that's what we see happening here. That yes, they've reestablished right worship of God. They've re-engaged uh, themselves in the covenant relationship and submitting to their covenant responsibilities. And immediately they're attacked. Well, what could God possibly be doing in this moment? Well, before we move on to that, the second thing I want us to see in this is this. It's the first point on your outline. A darkened world breeds hostility. A darkened world breeds hostility against God's law, God's ways, and God's people. To live a life of devotion to God's law and his ways and to live a life in devotion of worship to him is to be in direct opposition of the majority. What does Jesus tell us? Wide is the path that leads to destruction. Why is it so wide? Because there's so many who are traveling on it to accommodate its multitude of travelers. And then Jesus tells us, narrow is the path that leads to life. Why? Because so few find it. 
So when the few are in opposition to the many, hostility will boil over, especially when it comes to spiritual things, especially when it comes to obeying the word of God. So we see Jesus warn his disciples in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So in other words, if we are assimilated with culture and culture approves of us and we are not in any way in opposition to it and we're able to just blend in and get along, something's wrong. And Jesus goes on to say, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If this month feels wrong and how the culture is celebrating it, it should. It's supposed to. If how we seek to live our lives as believers seems constantly at odds and, and the ball schedules don't line up and nothing seems to just match to where we can rightly and appropriately worship God and when we're trying to act and live accordingly within our society, it's not supposed to. So on the other hand, we can't be so obsessed with why is the, why is the world the way it is? It's because it's broken. Opposition is to be expected. We read this in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. This is humanity. This is people, the world, right? Culture. That God's word is written on the heart. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What does this mean? It means that those who oppose God are not passive victims of sin, but active participants in it. And so too were we before Christ pierced our hearts with the light of the gospel. And it's this difference, God's grace, that makes us actively opposed to the darkness and the darkness actively hostile towards us. And so, although they've restored themselves to right worship of God, the people here back in our story, it is that exact reason that they're being attacked. Right? So, before they were under the reign of Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And now that they're under the reign of Hezekiah and he's restored right worship of God and, and submitting to the law of the Lord, what happens? Immediately, hostile opposition occurs. So let's continue reading in our story and see what the response is to this. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside of the city, and they helped him. So what it essentially is going on here is that the people at this time uh, under Hezekiah's rule had created a new system uh, to bring water into the city. And so this was uh, through a series of tunnels. So it was underground. So now that they have all these above ground water sources, he said, look, why don't we just stop up all these water sources so that when the invading forces come in, they've got no water immediately available to them. 
okay? And that's what's going on here. And so he, he sets up to work resolutely and build up the wall then. So he sets up fortifications and to protect the people. And he strengthened the middle of the city. Verse 6, and he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them. So let's pause right there. So in looking to this response by Hezekiah and those under his leadership, what did they do upon hearing that they were soon to be attacked? They acted. They used their minds and their resources and talents given to them by God to set forth a plan of action. Now let me ask you this question. Does this mean that they did not trust God to provide and protect? No. And we're going to see that blatantly here in just a little bit. And so to follow that question up, does man's action negate God's providence? No. So what we're seeing here is that, is that as God is providentially reigning over what is happening in the lives of the people right here, not only did he send Hezekiah to bring them back into right worship of him, but now he is also allowing them to be attacked but he's also provided them with the necessary defense, the necessary minds and the leadership to prepare them to go against their attackers. And so neither does God's providence negate man's responsibility. And here's what I want us to see as we continue to look at this part of the story. The next point on your outline, the Lord providentially protects his people. The Lord providentially protects his people. And you might ask yourself, what does that look like? How does that look and reflect in my life? Throughout Scripture, we see a few different ways that the Lord protects his people. One of the ways the Lord chooses to protect is through his preventative protection. He might prevent the attack from happening, prevent the enemy from being able to rise up against his people, prevent the storm from coming or the, the plague or the disease so that his people may flourish and be preserved. However, another way in which the Lord protects is his sustaining protection. That is, he provides means and methods that his people may be victorious. So he sustains his people through the attack, which means and implies that he allows the attack. And he allows the opposition. He allows the obstacle to occur. That his people may be sustained through it by his provision. And yet another way in which the Lord protects is his enduring protection. And this one is hard, right? Because this one implies that he allows the attack to occur and sometimes he allows his people to be overcome. You might ask yourself, well, how is that protection? Because the Lord is not only protecting against physical adversity, but he is looking to the inside, spiritual health. So how could that be protection? Sometimes the attack is part of the protection. And we must not allow ourselves to become so consumed with thoughts of disdain toward the world and culture and sin that we are not clear-headed in our exaltation of Christ. 
It's then that we fight the battle appropriately. When we see God's hand in every facet of our life and we are clear-headed in our exaltation of it, it's then that we fight the battle appropriately. We read this in Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So that's what my declaration to the Lord will be, is that you are my refuge, you are my fortress, you are the one in whom I trust. For why? So why? Why do we say that to the Lord? Verse 3 of Psalm 91, he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Which, of course, means what? Sometimes you find yourself in the snare of the fowler. Sometimes you find yourself in the pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. So sometimes he's protecting, he's providing, you're, you're finding refuge in him. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. So there is nothing that can assail that would ultimately bring the demise of God's people and those who find refuge and fortress and protection and trust in him. So to trust in the Lord's protection for our families does not mean that we sit back and simply say, like, the Lord will protect us. It's all right. But what is the response here of the people? Is it Hezekiah prompts them to action, to move, to defend, to prepare. And so we must ask ourselves in this cultural moment, how do we need to defend ourselves? By clinging even tighter and trusting even more in the providence of God and also looking at all things through the lens of the truth of his word. We stand on the truth of God's word. We act in faithful obedience to it and we trust in the Lord's protection no matter what may come. And as we see, that is exactly what Hezekiah leads the people to do. As we pick back up in verse 7. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. So let's pause right there at the end of verse 7. So that should sound familiar, that first part of Hezekiah's charge to the people. Be strong and courageous. Because this echoes David's charge to Solomon which echoes Joshua's charge to the people, which echoes Moses' charge to Joshua. So do you see as the word of God and confidence and trusting in the providence of God and the protection of God is passed down from generation to generation, people to people, we see what bolstering confidence that can provide because what does he continue to say? He says, with us, with him, so that is Sennacherib rather, is an arm of flesh. I mean, all he has on his side is people and his own ability and strength and might and knowledge. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. So that shows where the confidence was. That, look, we're going to make 
protection, provision. We're going to set up a wall. We're going to block out the water. But ultimately, the one fighting the battle is who? The Lord our God. And so what is, what is the response of the people there, that last sentence in verse 8? And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Well, what were Hezekiah's words? It was continued and repeated confidence in the word, in the faithfulness, the provision, the trust in the Lord. And so the people are bolstered now. Why? Because their confidence is not in everything that they've just done. Their, their confidence is not in their king, but their confidence is in the king. So I want us to see that next point there on your outline. An illumined heart trusts in the Lord's providence. An illumined heart trusts in the Lord's providence. We see time and again throughout Scripture that the sinful brokenness of the world is what causes the darkness of the heart to be blinded. Sons of disobedience. But those who have a heart that has been illumined by the, the gospel, our trust is to be in the Lord's providence, not in our flesh, because with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God. And what's interesting about Hezekiah, as we look at this story on a Father's Day, is again, he took over the throne from his father, Ahaz, a horrible example of what it meant to follow the Lord. But the Lord's word rang true and illumined the heart of Hezekiah. So despite a testimony of unfaithfulness and rebellion from his father, his, he was able to endure by God's sustaining grace. And we see this in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 2. And he did, this is Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. So again, establishing confidence in that this was continuing fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. An illumined heart trusts in the Lord's providence. We're going to be challenged with a question here in just a little bit of on what are you trusting? And let that question ring out in your heads daily church as you seek to shepherd your families as you seek to love your spouse as you seek to interact with the world around us whether it be at work or just in regular day to day life on whom are you trusting on what are you trusting are you trusting in the Lord's providence or are you trusting in something else Let's continue reading. Verse 9. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying. So he's about to engage in some nefarious, uh, underhanded warfare here, some psychological warfare is what's about to go on. So he sends his servants, he's attacking Lachish, and he hears about that they're getting ready and they're making provision to stand up against this rather than just laying down and succumbing to what we say 
And he sends his servants to Jerusalem, and they say this, verse 10. Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? So notice how he's establishing not only a mistrust in Hezekiah, but mainly a mistrust in the Lord. Verse 12. Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem before one altar you shall worship and on it you shall burn your sacrifices. So his, his best line of attack is like, he took away all the other places of worship and he told you, you can only worship in one place. Which means what? He's attacking obedience in God's word as weakness. Verse 13. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion, and do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? So we've seen an illumined heart trusts in the Lord's providence. That's what we saw in Hezekiah's brief address to his people. Was like, don't trust in him, he's got a harm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God. Sometimes you say more by saying less. Because then he sends his servants. Sennacherib sends his servants who go on this long soliloquy of trying to undermine not only Hezekiah's reign, but undermine trust in God. And so I want us to see this from Hezekiah's address. Blinded hearts trust only in the flesh. Because as you listen to Hezekiah, Sennacherib's question through his servants, he says, on what are you trusting that you will endure the siege in Jerusalem? He's just looking at it like, look, you're outmatched, outnumbered. Look at all these other nations that I've defeated, all these other kings, all these other gods. They weren't able to deliver them, their, their servants from my hand. And here I am about to do the same to you. So an illumined heart trusts in the Lord's providence. A blinded heart trusts only in the flesh. So I'll ask you again, church, on what are you trusting? No matter what you're facing in life right now, on what are you trusting? A heart blinded by sin would have us believing that obedience is weakness. And that's the attack here. Like they, he took away all, these, all the high places. And he said, you, you can only worship in one place? Well, yeah, because that's what God's word says. And so that's what Hezekiah was doing. A blinded heart by sin would have us believing that obedience is weakness, that surrender of control is foolish, that faith in anyone other than ourselves is misguided. This is what we read again, referencing back to Romans 1. Paul 
addressing the church in Rome, showing a, what a biblical worldview of seeing the actions of culture through the lens of the Bible looks like. Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forevermore. Amen. So as we look to the actions of culture, let us not become so consumed with our disdain for culture that we lose our clarity on glorifying Christ. Let us not become so frustrated with the attack that we fail to realize whom our trust is in. We know where the world's trust is. We know where the darkness will lead. It leads to trust in self. But those who are in Christ know that our trust is in the Lord's provision and protection. We continue reading back in 2 Chronicles. We're picking back up now in verse 20. So, his Sennacherib's servants, just kind of summarizing what we're skipping over, which is verses 16 through 19. Sennacherib's servants continue to uh, go against the Lord God and against Hezekiah, and he, he passes out leaflets. He gives out letters that cast contempt on the Lord, right? And he says, like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people from my hands, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And so they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the people of the earth. There's a little foreshadowing there in verse 19. And then we go to verse 20. So then Hezekiah, the king, and Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with the shame on his of, of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations from that time onward. So I want us to see this real quick. I want us first to note what was the response as the tension is mounting, the pressure against the Lord is mounting, the pressure against Hezekiah to, succumb, to, to continue to submit to the ways of the Lord. Like I, it would be easy in this moment to say, I've done everything right. I've reestablished worship of you. I've, I've restored worship in the temple. I've gotten rid of all the high places. But Hezekiah does what? 
king, Hezekiah the king, and Isaiah the prophet, some of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. So if you're discouraged, detracted by the state of our world, if you're discouraged by maybe a battle that you're fighting within your family, if you're discouraged by who knows what, there's a multiplicity of things that any of us in this room right now could be discouraged, detracted, and defeated by. On what are you trusting? And what has been your response? Hezekiah and the king Isaiah, the prophet, son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And what happened? The Lord sends an angel, cuts off all of Sennacherib's warriors, which is interesting because now Sennacherib has to return to his own homeland without an army, defeated. And he returns and he goes into the house of his God and he's cut down by his own sons in disgrace and shame. So I want you to see this final point on your outline. Those who trust in the flesh will ultimately suffer. Because I've asked this question, on what are you trusting? If you're trusting in your own ability, your own strength, your own might, you will ultimately suffer. But those who trust in the Lord will find ultimate provision. The darkness may seem dark for a while, but the light of the gospel pierces through it. The sunrise is coming. Now, there's another tale of warning here in the story of Hezekiah because we see him submit to the Lord in this moment and consistent with everything that we've read before that. But if you continue the story in verse 24, we see in those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So Hezekiah's response to this great victory was that he allowed himself to be puffed up in pride. And it was only in submitting once again in humility to the Lord that the Lord took away from him the sickness. He became sick because of it. Well, then the Lord took it away and Hezekiah was still proud. And so therefore, wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, again, humbled himself. So what, how could the Lord be protecting in the midst of defeat sometimes, but the, in the midst of sickness or death or, or whatever it may be? Is that he is not only the one who pulls us out from the waves, but he's the one who sends the waves that we may reach out to him and grasp at him in desperation and humility. So whether you find yourself on the side of verse 20 through 23, experiencing great um, provision of the Lord's protection and prevention in your life, 
Incredible. Awesome. Praise the Lord for that. Lest you find yourself on this side of the story, verses 24 through 26, where you are becoming prideful on the mountaintop, thinking that everything is because of what you have done. And if that's the case, prepare yourself for the valley. And in the valley, cry out to the Lord. The challenge here, of course, in this story and that lies over all of Scripture is the responsibility of man to respond to how God has made himself known. Although they knew God did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And so, church, if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, the challenge here is to seek the ultimate way in which the Lord has provided and protected and that is by surrendering his own son to be taken to the cross and pay the penalty for our sin that we might come to know him rightly. So if you're here this morning, you have not submitted to the work of Christ on the cross, I implore you to respond to the Lord's drawing. And if you have, on who are you trusting? Let's pray, church. God, we love you. Pray, Lord, that you would help us. Whether we're in the midst of experiencing great victory, which you have given us in life, or experiencing just a tremendous moment of blessing, a season in our life in which just everything seems to be going right, I pray that you would keep us in a posture of humility. Lord, as I look out over a room that is full of people that have hurts, distresses. God, I pray that you would show them that you have provided protection, provision for them even if those things are seemingly, those, those hurts and distresses are seemingly winning victories over them in their life. I pray that you would help them to see your hand in that and to see how you have provided them a way to submit fully to you and let you fight the battles. I pray that you would use your word, again, to pierce our hearts for the edification of your church and the glorification of your name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.